talk to you a, a few moments today. And uh, for some of you who've been around for a while and your walk with God for many years, you'll hopefully see some things in here. I'll be reminded of some things that help you. And then there's some that maybe you're brand new. And uh, hopefully some things that are shared today will kind of bring some clarity and understanding to you as you start your journey with Jesus Christ. But if I, if you've ever been to England um, or you've heard someone who speaks British English, you know that there is a, um, a difference in uh, our language. Even though we both speak English, there are certain um, terminologies that are not the same. For example, if someone from uh, Great Britain or England said, can you get me some biscuits? I'm thinking of Cracker Barrel or uh, Popeye's or KFC. I'm thinking of biscuits. You know what I mean? Just those circular pieces of heaven, uh, buttermilk biscuits that maybe you had some for breakfast this morning or maybe you're going to have some later because I'm talking about it and you're salivating. I would probably bring you some biscuits. But if someone from England or Great Britain ask you for some biscuits, they're really asking you for a cookie. So you would bring them some fluffy, warm, soft buttermilk biscuits, but they would be wanting you to bring them a cookie. Or if they said, here, here's my luggage, can you put it in the boot? We as Americans, we'd take our luggage and we would figure out, how can I get this suitcase into my size nine boot? Because my boot is this big, the luggage is this big, and it doesn't make sense but to understand that the trunk of a car in England is a boot. So if they say, put my luggage in the boot, they're asking you to put the luggage into the trunk of the car, not into your actual shoe. But if you're not understanding and aware of some of these differences, uh, it's very easy for you to uh, misunderstand things and for there to be concepts or, 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 or communication that gets lost in translation. And it's important when I'm talking to someone or I'm sharing things with someone or someone is talking to me, uh, I'll stop them sometimes and go, what do you mean by that statement? Or what, what does that word mean to you? Because if you're talking about uh, 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 trust or faith or some other uh, you know, word that's commonly used, if you have a definition for that word and I have a definition for that word and we don't have the same definition, our understanding of what's being communicated will be completely different. So today, for the next few minutes, I want to go through some things in Scripture where when you hear those words, our meaning and understanding of them today is different than their original intent. And so when God speaks these things or we're, we're, we're desiring to be certain things, we've got to determine which definition or which idea are we really shooting for. And we're going to go through several of these examples and I'll share with you what I mean by this, but we're going to talk about things today that are lost in translation. And this is, again, not just for those of you that have been around for a while, but this is for you that are brand new because you're desiring to know Jesus Christ or you're desiring to grow in him, and there may be some things that you're desiring to understand or be. And if you don't understand that, again, it's like saying, can you put this into the boot? You're over there trying to shove things into your shoe, and it's frustrating, and it's not working. Why is this not going into my shoe? It's too big. When in reality, the boot is the trunk, and if you would just open up the trunk lid, it fits perfectly. Or you're bringing God buttermilk, soft, moist, warm biscuits right out of the oven that you just spent 
two hours making from scratch and you're giving it to God and God's going, I don't want this. And you're offended and hurt because God, I'm giving you biscuits. And God says, yes, but for me, biscuits mean cookies, not buttermilk biscuits from Cracker Barrel. So if we don't understand the concept and we, un we don't understand what things mean and the way God meant them to mean, then ultimately we're not going to get the results that God is desiring in our life. And I'll give you I'll give you some easy ones first before we get to a little more in-depth ones. Let's use this word because if you are watching this today or you are going to be watching or maybe you're, you're, you're at a later date, this is a word that you're probably either familiar with or you are identified as. Right? C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Christian. Now, when you see the word Christian today, what does that mean to you? Usually, to me, when I see the word Christian, it's followed with this symbol, right? It's either hung around a necklace, it's either on a bumper sticker, it's in your house, it's on earrings, whatever it is. It's because to you, a Christian is a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus. It's a it's a uh, someone who professes to 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 uh, believe in Jesus, and really. In a lot of ways, the word Christian has become a synonym of the word uh, believer. So if you're a believer, you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you're a believer. And while there is some truth to that, the problem is this word here in its original context has a far different meaning than the word we use today. Because to me, today, if anybody professes or believes in Jesus Christ or has in some ways had some kind of uh, born-again experience or a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, they are now a Christian. And so we have tons of people running around professing that they're a Christian. But if you ask people that have no affiliation with anybody or they're, they're secular, meaning they've never had a church experience, they've never been to church, can, they, can you describe a Christian, their definition of what a Christian means to them is not going to be very favorable because most of the time Christians are known as judgmental. Christians aren't really have the best reputation about their attitude, their conduct, their lifestyle. Christians are known as hypocritical. Did I mention judgmental? <laughs> Judgmental, judgmental, right? That's the idea of it. If you ask the man on the street what's a Christian, that's the definition. You probably wouldn't get many, many favorable descriptions of the word Christian. They, most people wouldn't say, you know what, the normal man on the street, what's a Christian? Well, they're the greatest people in the world. You won't find people who love, who care, who forgive, who accept more than the Christians. Man, the Christians are the best. That's not the opinion. You know why? Because the original word Christian has been substituted for a word that just simply means someone who professes a belief in Christ. Why is this important? Well, let's go back to the Bible, right? Acts chapter 11, verse number 26 says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So again, no, you know this, but let's go back to this because this is building a foundation for later. The word Christian. 
What does it really mean? What does the word Christian mean, right? We know it, but do we really understand it, right? And I'm saying it, some of you are probably saying you know what it means. You're yelling it at the screen. You know it. Word Christian literally means Christ-like. That's what the original description of the word Christian came from was because the original disciples and those that were gathering for the whole year at Antioch exhibited such a Christ character and conduct and action that the only way they could describe these people, because again, to say they were disciples was not unique. There were disciples everywhere. There were disciples of certain rabbis. There were disciples of certain ideologies. There were discipleship was not a, was not a, uh, a new concept that the church invented. Jesus didn't even invent discipleship. Discipleship was interwoven into the culture. So in order to come up with a different description, because these people that were at Antioch, these followers of Jesus Christ were so different, the only way they could come up was to create a new word, and they literally coined the word Christian because they were Christ-like. Now let's be frank today. Come on, let's be honest. You and me talking here for a moment. I'm sitting here in my house. You're sitting in your house. It's just us. No one else is here. My mic is working, I think. I do see green. Is that really what Christian means today? When someone says to you, I'm a Christian, does your first thought come back to a Christ-like life, a Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, action, attitude is that what you think no if someone says they are christian your first thought is i'm a well they're a believer maybe they go to church some christians claim to be christians but don't go to church but our we very rarely ever think of christian and christ-like so you know what's funny now in order to try to distinguish this word, we've had to substitute words. Now we call ourselves, we label ourselves by denominations. I'm Methodist, I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Apostolic, which now makes it, you know, if you're Apostolic, you've reached the pinnacle. These are the words we use because now we can't label ourselves as Christian because the word Christian has become misunderstood. So now we have to label ourselves by our doctrine or by our belief system, which further divides us. Because ultimately, if I'm a Baptist and you're a Methodist, I can't have any contact with you because we're different. But see, the early church was trying to be Christ-like. We may not all be there right now, but we're all striving to be like Christ. The early church had different factions. Paul even wrote about it. He said, some of you follow John, some of you follow Peter, some of you follow me. Because ultimately, the whole goal was to be Christ-like. He was the head of the church. He was the author and the finisher. So here's a great, great example of a word that's been lost in translation because I very rarely profess and call, and people ask me, I very rarely confess that I'm a Christian. Sadly, because that's like someone asking me for a biscuit and me giving them buttermilk biscuits instead of a cookie. Because if someone says, are you a Christian? Or I profess to be a Christian automatically this Christ-like character, which is what I'm desiring to have in my Christian walk, gets lost in translation. 
And again, I'm not suggesting it's wrong to use that word. I'm not suggesting saying, well, don't say you're a Christian anymore. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this for your benefit to understand because we're going to go a little further here and we're going to look at some things even further because this is not the only place we see this. But here's a good example. Let's look at another one, right? John 13, 34. Jesus said, by all this, shall men know you're my disciples. Here's your defining moment of how you are going to be my disciples. How is everybody going to know you're my disciples? And he says this, that you have love. One for another. That's the defining characteristic. Now, that's an easy word to know, right? We got that word. That's an easy word. Love. You know, Nat King Cole sang about it. Love, L, is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore. I got it out of here. That's what we think of love. Like love is this, this feeling, this emotion, this romantic feeling, this, this warm, fuzzy thing. And so when he said love one for another, and I'm looking across the, the room at somebody that's a brother in Christ, and I don't agree with them. I don't like them. They don't, they don't match my, my, my world. I, it's very hard to love them because I don't have that feeling towards them. And so when you walk in and he said, by all this shall men know you're my disciples, you have loved one for another. When you walk into a group of believers, very rarely do you define that group of believers as, man, these people know how to love. They'll love you as long as you look like them, act like them, or are a part of their same cultural heritage. Why? Well, there are three different words. There's more, but basically three different concepts of love. In the New Testament. In the Greek world, word, world in the New Testament, there was three basic kinds of love. Now, there's more there. If you go look it up, you'll find that there's actually more. And you're going to say, well, you're wrong. There's more than three. There's Some say there's six. Others say there are eight. But in basic concepts, there's three. There's eros, philio, and agape. So when the Bible talks about love and uses the word love, it's going to pull from these words here. Now, eros is not a word that is really translated in the Bible. This word eros is where we would get sort of a, 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 a romantic love. It's a fleshly love, if I could call it that. I'll try to be very coy here in my description. Eros is a, it, 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 this is a word we get uh, that uh, there's another word we get from eros in our language that's a little bit of a taboo word. Eros is sort of the baseline love. Filio is, again, Philadelphia, it's brotherly love. It's, it's a love that is, is based off this understanding. It's a, a friendship, a relationship, a connection kind of love. Uh, when Jesus, when it talked about Jesus having love for Lazarus, the word there was filio. When he had love for his, when Jesus had love for his disciples, it was filio. In John, uh, I think it was John twenty. John twenty, he talks about Jesus loving his disciples. That was filio, right? And so, therefore, filio. And there's another word called storge, which is sort of a family love. And there's one instance in the Bible. I'm not getting too technical here, but there's one instance where the two words where uh, filio and storge were brought together, filio storge, which means a family love or a devotion, right? 
you'd probably say that that a, that a mother or father has a storge type love for their children. It's a family love. It's a connection. It's a bonding type love. But Jesus says, have love one for another. This is the definition by which we have love for one for another. So the problem is, we have love for one another. This is the word we use. Filio. Here's the problem. It's really hard to have filio when we don't agree. It's really hard to have filio when our lifestyles don't match up. It's hard to have filio when you're a Republican I'm not an, am I, am I, and I'm a Democrat. It's hard to have filio when you're a liberal and I'm a conservative. Let's, this is real language here, in case you're wondering. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. Because when we find out our differences, it's really hard to find this. We're used to eros. We're used to this emotional love. You know, can you feel the love tonight? It's this emotion. We're used to having love that's emotional. Even though we realize in reality, love is a choice, but we love the fact that love brings emotions. That's why we watch, uh, you know, most women watch romantic movies because that it, it curtails to an emotional feeling, right? Because it's now men don't really have the same emotion with love. For men, love is more of a cerebral thing. Women, love is more emotional. But we kind of come towards the same idea, right? We're looking for something to define love. But then Jesus comes along in John chapter 13 and says, by the way, have this is how everybody's going to know you're my disciple because you have love one for another. We're like, how are we supposed to do that? Because I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my family. How am I supposed to have the same love for everybody else? Because we don't understand the word love that's being used there. The word love there that Jesus is referring to is this word. It's agape. This agape word here that's used is the highest form of love. Now what's unique about this is it wasn't invented for the New Testament writers. Agape was something that had already been in the Greek language. But what's unique about agape is it was only used in reference to God and his love. God is love. The Bible says God is love, meaning God is agape. So he says, have love one for another. The only way we can have love for one for another is through agape love. Agape love is not my love that's emotional. It's not my love that's brotherly. Agape love is only from God and through God and my God. So if we would have love one for another, we can only do that with God and his help. So again, another word lost in translation. If I said love your brother, you're like, oh my God, I don't even like him. How can I love him? I don't even get along with him. He drives me crazy. They drive me crazy. I don't even want to shake their hand. I can't do it. And you walk in, you go, how can I love these people? Or we struggle understanding the difference between love and acceptance. Because we think in order to love somebody, we have to accept them. But we know the fact that God loves me even though he doesn't agree with everything. Love and agreement are not the same, right? You can love somebody without agreeing with them. Now, today, our world says you don't love me unless you agree with me. But if that's the case, that's why agape is so powerful. Because God loves me just like I am. He loves me in the condition I am. And none of us are always at the place where everything in our life is perfect. There are times I'm a mess, but he loves me. There's times where I sin, but he loves me. There's times that I fail, but he loves me because he is love. 
So love doesn't mean I agree with everything you do. Love doesn't mean I have to agree with everything you do. Love doesn't mean we have to be on the same page. That kind of love. Eros, maybe. Filio, yeah. But agape means we can be different, but still love. We can have things that are not the same and still love. That's why the church is supposed to be different. Because the world loves through eros. The world tries to bring everybody together. Let's, you know... Was it the OJs that said, start a love train, right? Because that's the world. Let's just all love each Can't we all just love each other? But the problem is the world can only get to a filio type of love. That's why the church is supposed to be powerful. Because the church is supposed to not just have filio or eros. The church is supposed to have agape because we're to be Christ-like, which means we're supposed to have Christ in us, and he is love, and therefore our love is supposed to be different. So when someone comes and walks into our community... They're supposed to feel a different type of love, even though we may not agree with their lifestyle, even though we may not agree with where they are. They don't feel anything but love because we're not loving them with our love. We're loving them with his love. And that's supposed to be the defining mark of discipleship. Let's look at another one here. We're going to get to the good one here in just a moment. Here's another one. Now, this is sort of not necessarily lost in translation as far as our misunderstanding of the Bible, but it's lost in how we really understand. And, and some of you have heard this talked about. I've talked about it. My wife has talked about this. But this is a huge, huge concept. And that is this. this. Conviction. C-O-N-I-V-I-C-D. Conviction versus... Now I can get this whole word on the board here. Well, chicken scratches. Conviction versus condemnation. These are not interchangeable. This is important, and hopefully this is going to help somebody. Conviction and condemnation. Both are the effects of incorrect or errant decisions, right? Both come about as a desire to change or to modify or to point out behavior, but they're not the same. Conviction is something that is powerful. Condemnation will destroy you. They're not the same. And if you don't understand that, you're never going to really truly be able to understand and grow from where you are, and you're going to constantly live in a place of defeat, frustration. Why? Because conviction comes from God. Conviction's always from God. The source and the foundation of conviction is God. Condemnation always comes from the flesh, from Satan. And how do I know the difference? Very simple. Conviction points out my mistakes, but gives me hope of change. Condemnation points out my, my mistakes, but leaves me feeling hopeless. Or what's the point? It'll never change. So the big point to conviction, and this is important. There's more in the Bible that really points to this. But this is a terminology some of you have heard me talk about before. The fruit of the thought. Sorry, I'll make that T a little bigger so you know it's a T. The fruit of the thought determines 
the origin. Notice this. If you hear this today, the fruit of the thought determines the origin. What do I mean by that? Meaning, what is the fruit of these two thoughts? The fruit of conviction is hope. The fruit of the conviction is to point you back to Jesus Christ. The fruit of condemnation is hopelessness, being condemned, feeling you'll never get it right. What's the point? I, I don't even want to ask God because he's probably already mad at me. So let me ask you, based off the fruit, what sounds more like God? Hope or hopelessness? A desire to change or an understanding I'm always going to be a mess up? Fruit. This goes in beyond just conviction and condemnation. This goes to everything. You can use this same, same exact uh, um, concept or the same principle in almost every thought that you deal with on a daily basis. What's the fruit of the thought? The fruit of the thought determines the origin. For example, if you're all of a sudden inundated with fear, and you're like, is God trying to warn me? Is God trying to warn me? I'm so afraid. I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm panicking. Is God? No, God doesn't do that. God doesn't scare you. God can warn you. God can bring a, 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 a correction to you. God may challenge you. But the fruit of his challenge, his warning, is always going to lead to him or peace. I, I give you an example. My wife has shared this testimony before, and I, but I think for this is a really good testimony. Uh, back in 2017, her, uh, her father passed away. But months before that, she was out on a jog, and in the middle of her running, God spoke to her, or a thought came to her, about, about her dad and his health. But she said when it came... There wasn't fear, there wasn't torment, there wasn't stress. It was put into her spirit. Now you say, well, how do you know it's God? The fruit of it. Because there have been times when we've had situations where our kid, our children, where fear or torment or worry or stress hits her. Something physically is going to happen to our children. Something's going to happen to them. And she's fearful and stressed. And she'll know then, wait a minute, this is not God. Because if God was trying to tell me something, there'd be fruit here. So again, conviction, condemnation. Seeming like the same word, but they're lost in translation. Because we, conviction and condemnation, there should be no condemnation in God. Only conviction. If you're dealing with condemnation, it's not coming from God. It's coming from you. It's coming from the world. It's coming from, the, from Satan himself. God only deals with conviction. But if you don't know that, then you're going to take condemnation and you're going to put it on God and you're going to think God is that way. And therefore, instead of pulling yourself towards him, you're going to run away from him. Let's look at another one here. This is important because it's leading to something later on we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks because we're going to be talking about some ideas behind what does it mean to follow God. And if you don't understand that the word follow in the sense that Jesus meant it and the way we mean it don't mean the same. But let's look at a couple more examples that are important here. You've heard me talk about this before, but let's look at this concept. This is a huge concept. Repent. This is a major, major word here because in the beginning when they asked Peter, 
what they should do. Peter's response back at the beginning of the church, Peter's response back to them, the first words out of Peter's mouth was to repent. What does that mean to repent? Well, part of repentance means to change our mind, to change our thoughts. That's part of it. That's a big part of it, right? We the word repent means to change mind or change thoughts. So we'll just we'll just we'll just put it up there. Mind and thought. That's a part of repentance, and it's true. So we understand that the word repent. We've got to, everything with God starts with repentance, right? Salvation starts with repentance. Change starts with repentance. But repentance is what? Change our mind, change our thought. But there's something greater in the word repent that's a bigger concept that if all we ever do is this, we're never going to see truly the fruit of repentance. And that's why we're going to have frustration because we're always going to be repenting but never seeing the outcome that we desire. Because it's not the same. Because there's a word that is in the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a Hebrew word, S-H-U-W-B. It's pronounced shub. That's the pronunciation for it, in case you're wondering. Shub. What does that mean? Because to me, this word unlocks the power of repentance. This word, to shub, literally means to turn or to turn or to return unto. For example, there's a very famous scripture. Most of you know it. If, even if you don't really know the Bible, you probably have heard it. Psalms 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restore my soul. That word restore there is shub. It means to turn or to return. So here's the point, right? Let's look at this way. This is how I'm a visual person and God usually shows me things in pictures. So I apologize here. This is like a really bad game of Pictionary, but hopefully you'll understand where I'm coming from. Let's just say we had a square box here, right? Let's just say, sort of like, think of a pool table for a second, all right? And we have a ball here. And that ball is on our table. And I believe here, if I'm mistaken, I have a, oh, what did I do with them? I had a, another color marker I could use here to illustrate this point, and I don't know what I did with them. Oh, where'd it go? Apologize for a moment. I was going to try to use a different color. Oh, there they are. Let me just use it here because I want you to see this. And um, we've already sort of had a complete technical buckle today. So let's just have a moment here while I find my marker. So here's how the concept of repentance is if we're not careful. We're heading in this direction, right? We're heading. Here's our, here's our life. We're heading. We hit a wall. Now, if you ever rolled a ball on a pool table, it works in angles, right? So if that ball hits there, guess what it's going to do? It's going to hit this, and it's going to now go here, right? Because it's on an angle, right? 
If it keeps traveling again, there's going to get to a point in time where it hits this, and guess what? It's going to hit this, and it's going to have another angle, and another angle. And if you're not careful, and you have enough speed, that ball is literally going to follow around the entire table on angles. This is how repentance works most of our lives. We hit a wall. We hit these places in our life, right? I'll use another color. We hit these different points of change in our life. Point of change, points of change, all these right here. These are points of change, points where we go, okay, this is not good. I need to change, and we hit them. The problem is this. Just because you have a change of mind or change of thought, and you go, well, I can't keep going this way because when I go this way, I hit this here, and this is bad. So I need to change my mind and change my thought. Guess what happens? The momentum of your decision, the momentum of your life continues to carry you on a predetermined trajectory. You're going this way, boom, change of thought, got it. But guess what? The predetermined direction now is simply down through here. You're just following the arrow this way. Now forget my getting a little, uh, it's getting a little hard to follow there, but you get what I'm saying. It's just changing your thought because you're realizing, no, nah, that's bad. So we go, so then we start to come up with a list, right? Get what I'm saying here for a moment. This is huge for somebody to hear what I'm saying because you're frustrated. We start to come up with a list of do's and don'ts based off a concept of this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't go there. Go here. Don't say that. Say this. Don't listen to that. Listen to this. Don't watch that. Don't because we know that every time these points of conflict or these points of deflection are bad stuff. So this one might be something we watched. This might be something we listened to. This might be something we said. This might be a place we went. And these are places of deflection that go, this is bad. I don't need to do it. I got to change. I got to change my thoughts. Bad. This is not good. And so the church now has jumped on that bandwagon and we have a whole list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, four hundred and fifty-five points of deflection of places and things and thoughts. Don't do these things because they're wrong. Because we found that they're wrong because there are points and points that mark it. Here's the thing. The issue is this. Life is not a beautiful box. Life is not easily defined, right? We can't make everything this beautiful box that we can stay and bounce in. A lot of it, life is more like this. Life is sort of undefinable. Life is constantly evolving and changing and 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 all of a sudden, where it was before, you know, we didn't have social media back in the 80s. And so we had this, we kind of figured out, okay, this is how things are. Let's define everything by this. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, Mark Zuckerberg comes along and creates a whole nother section over here called Facebook or social media. And now guess what we got to do? We got to redefine it. And so life is constantly changing. And so for us who's, who are trying to define repentance as staying within this box of deflection, of confine, of coming up with the areas of, oh, don't do that, don't go there, do that. 
How do you take that concept and put it in a world like this? Because honestly, if you did that, you would be all over the map. It's easy to, to define right and wrong and good and bad when it's square. But life's not square. Life is just this mess. The world is becoming more messier. The world is becoming less defined. So then how can we define the word repentance if it's just simply going, let's change our mind, bad, let's go another direction, to only find another area, okay, bad, let's turn direction. So we're just constantly turning direction, and ultimately we're never really truly seeing the fruit of repentance, which is ultimately change, because we're defining repentance by simply saying, okay, our mind says bad, let's go another direction. And so the problem is, if we can't define our world in a beautiful little box, and we define our world, our world is more defined by this undescriptive sort of globular shape here, we struggle. So what do we do? We do several things. Either we have to really work hard to come up with a list of things, or we really work hard to define everything as black and white, because here it's easier. If it's black and white in scripture, then we can make it a box and it's easier to determine what's good and what's bad. And so we work really hard because everything's got to make sense and everything's got to work. And so we've got to figure out ways to describe everything from a scripture. We gotta, we're, we're, we're stressing and fighting and arguing about the determination of what's this word mean and how's this verse mean and what's this part mean. And someone says, well, does it say in the Bible that I can't do cocaine? No, the Bible doesn't say that you can't do cocaine. Sorry. The Bible does not say thou shalt not do cocaine. Doesn't say that. So does that mean cocaine is okay? No. But the Bible doesn't say that. You're right, because not everything is a beautiful box. Now, I believe that someone who is being Christ-like shouldn't do cocaine. I don't have a beautiful box for that. I've got a messy, jumbled mess here. So how in the world do I determine how to live my life and truly repentance if not everything is this beautiful box and life is more like this messy glob? I've got to go back to the original understanding what true repentance is. Because in the middle of my messy, globular, undefinable life where some stuff's always changing, what was good yesterday is bad today. What was bad yesterday is good today. And can I just say this, and this is probably Joel talking, so please forgive me if I offend you. And, and, and I, this is not Jesus, this is Joel. If you want to use the, the uh, scripture, my body is the temple, as against cocaine... There's a lot of other things you might want to continue to work that out with before you use that scripture to use it on your soapbox against drug use. Because if your body's the temple, it should be the temple all the way through, not just in the areas that you uh, sort of like to defend. I'll leave it at that because I'll go down some dark roads I refuse to go down today. Here's the point. Life is not easily defined. The world we live in is not easily defined. I can't give you every perfect little saying for how do and don't do this, go here and go through that. Because when you get out in your real life on Sunday morning, it's easy to find everything with a box. God, no God, good, bad. That's Sunday morning. But we live our life in a real world with real 
problems and real issues and everything is constantly changing. So how do I define true repentance? If it's just simply about changing my mind, I'm bouncing around like a ball rolling on a pool table that just caroms forever. Because to know in my messed up, undefined, ever-evolving world, because you know what, in reality, in the last five minutes, while we're sitting here, this is how crazy our world is. In the last five minutes we're sitting here, life has probably changed shape again, just in the few moments we're here. We've had more changing of shape. But to know in the middle of my chaos, someone hear what I'm saying today, I feel like the Lord's trying to tell somebody something right now. In the middle of my chaos, in the middle of my mess, in the middle of my ever-changing world, there's a constant source, and that source is Jesus Christ. So you know what? This is truly what it means to repent. Sometimes life and situations and circumstances Pull me away from Christ. Flesh, my thoughts, my ways. Temptation, pull me away. But if it's just simply about changing my mind, when I finally hit here, guess what? I'll just bounce over here, bounce over here, bounce over here. And as the world changes, my bouncing will change. As the world evolves, I won't bounce the same. I'll constantly do it because, again... I'm always changing my mind, but that's not really truly full repentance. You see, really, what repentance really is today, my friend, is, yes, there are going to be times where my life or temptation or circumstances or whatever else comes my way, pulls me away from Jesus Christ, the source, the center, right? Calvary, let's make this into a more recognizable symbol here. The cross of Jesus Christ. There's times where things pull me away from that cross. That's at the center of everything. That I'm supposed to be Christ-like. Being like Jesus Christ. Which is always going to bring me back to the cross. To the foot of the cross. Where I stand there in awe of his sacrifice. When I sit there and I look up at the face of my Savior in agony. With blood dripping down and puddling at his feet. To know that he did all that for me. Not simply so I could change my mind. But why? How can I live in this undefined, ever changing changing world that's constantly telling me this was good yesterday but it's bad today and this is bad yesterday but it's good today and I can't make everything beautiful and defined in a pretty box how do I live that way because here's how I live that way which is true biblical repentance there are times where my life my actions my flesh temptation whatever it is is going to pull me away from the cross and I'm going to hit these points down here, there's a wall coming in my life. There's something that's going to happen. I'm going to hit a point of deflection. I'm going to hit a point of stopping. But when I hit those points, here's the difference. I don't just say, okay, wait a minute. Forgive me. I got to change my mind. So that's bad. Don't ever do that again. That's changing my mind. Right? Don't do that ever again, Joel. Put that on the bad list. That's on the no good list. That's on the do not do list. Don't do that again. And so I just don't do it again, but I still keep going on the same trajectory. No, true repentance is this. When I hit these points and life pulls me away and I hit these points of deflection down here, true repentance goes, wait a minute, I've strayed off course. 
He's my shepherd. He knows what I want. And you know what? True repentance returns, brings me back to the source. You see, that's the true definition and the difference between conviction and condemnation. That's the difference between repentance and just having a thought process or positive mental thinking is where does it lead you? Conviction points out, you know what, Joel? This wasn't good down here, buddy. Not good. There's some error down here, but return to me. Come back to me. Come back to your source. That's what conviction says. But you see, condemnation? Uh-uh. No, no condemnation gets in your pretty little box that you've made that you wanted to find life by. And condemnation goes, you know what? All right. Oh, you messed up there. Oh, you messed up there. You messed up there. You must have, nope, messed up. Bad, you're bad. No, no bad. You're wrong, 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 wrong. And you just live a life that you just feel like you're just constantly bouncing around. You're never making progress. You're never seeing any true fruit in your life. You're never feeling joy and peace and happiness. And, and, and you're never feeling contentment. And you never wake up in the morning going, this is the day that the Lord has made. You wake up going, not another day. I can't live like this another day. Why? Because you don't understand that true understanding of how to walk with Jesus Christ requires you when, when you fall that you return back to the source. When you make a mistake, and you will make a mistake, I will make a mistake. By the end of today, I'm going to make a mistake. I've already made them this morning before I even started. I've In the first three hours of being up, four hours of being up, whatever time it is right now, four and a half hours I've been up so far. I've already made mistakes. It's built in. You can't avoid them. You're going to make mistakes because you know what? You're, you've got flesh. i got flesh. So how do we live in this undefined world that's constantly changing and evolving and moving around? And we got to repent. we got to stay, we got to stay connected with God. But how do we do that when nothing, when everything is constantly moving and we don't really know how to define? Because he got to understand at the center of everything, he is our source. At the center of it all, he's there. And when I fall, when I make a mistake, when I hit a wall, what do I do with it? Does it turn me back to him or does it keep me going and say, well, that was bad. I don't need to do that again. Right? It's not simply touching the stove and going, ow, touch the stove, it's hot, that will burn me. You see, that's the problem. We want to say, ow, that's hot, don't touch that, that will burn you. But you see, the true part of repentance is, not only the stove hot, don't touch it, but let's find out why we even went over to the stove to begin with. Why did it drive me to go to the stove? I need to go back to the source. That's why for most of us, we switch one addiction for another. It used to be drugs. Now it's alcohol. Maybe it was uh, sexual sins and now it's something else. Maybe you just, we just switch. Or now, instead of being addicted to something bad... We just we're addicted to good things, but it's still the same thing because we're not really we're not really going back to the source. We're just simply changing, and the word repentance gets lost in translation. You see, this is important today. There's more. I got more examples here, and I don't got I don't have time to go through all of them today. Maybe I'll continue to be able to do this another time if the Lord allows me. What I'm really trying to get at today is that God really wants to work in our life and wants to bring about things in our life. But if we're not understanding the concept and understanding the word and what he's doing, then we're going to not we're going to live more like this and not like this. 
We're going to walk a Christian life, but we won't be Christ-like. We're going to live with love, but it won't be his love. We're going to live with condemnation and not conviction. See, this is a simple drawing. And light is a little more complex than my little Pictionary work here. But the understanding is if God wants you to bring him biscuits today, his biscuits are cookie, not a buttermilk biscuit from Cracker Barrel or KSC or Popeyes. If God's telling you, you need to open up your boot and look what's inside. And you're over there tearing your shoes going, God, there's nothing in my shoe. So I'm okay. But you got a whole trunk of your car filled with junk. You go, God, I'm good. Look, my boot's empty. Look, my size 12, it's empty. I'm okay, God. I did what you told me to do. And God's going, yeah, but you're not looking in your boot. God, I am looking in my boot. See, it's empty. Yeah, but your boot is your trunk of your car. And I know there's a pile of junk in your trunk you haven't dealt with. So Peter says, repent. You're like, but I am repenting. I know what's bad. I know what not to do. I know where not to go. I got all the things listed of what happened. And if I'm wrong, tell me. What, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? Should I do this? Should I not do that? That's irrelevant, really. Because mistakes will change. Processes will change. What defines as good and bad in some ways changes on a daily basis. It's not the defining of good and bad is our problem. It's what the good and bad does to us that we need to address. And does it push us back towards him? Does it bring true repentance, which is to shub or to turn or to return back to him? Or does it just produce change of mind? You ever eaten something? I'm, I got a very sensitive stomach. Table pepper messes me up. I can't eat anything with spice or anything with with a lot of spices or anything with any kind of heat to it. Trust me, it's not a good day. So I'll eat something and man, it tears my stomach up. And I go, you know what? I'm not eating that again. I know that's bad. I know it. Can't eat that again. Mm-mm. Yeah. Is there change? Yeah, shortly. But reality, all I've known is what not to do. Or maybe what to do. To say it really changes me? No. You see, this is not about telling you to come up with a list of here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. This is really about what's the purpose and source of all this is to go back to him. But if we're not on the same page and things get lost in translation, you'll live frustrated with no fruit and you'll constantly think that God is this dictator, this hard-nosed uh, taskmaster that's always standing over you with a, with a gavel ready to forcefully bring down the word of judgment on your head. How dare you do this? Or how dare you say that? Or how dare you have that? When the reality is, if there's conviction, it's only to bring you back. You're getting a little too far out there, son, daughter. Hey, come back. 
It's like when your child is walking with you, maybe in the mall before COVID, right? We don't get to do this as much anymore. Malls are, are mostly empty. But, you know, when you're in a crowded place and your little child is with you and they start to pull away from you with Disney World. Man, my kids went to Disney World for the first couple of times when they were little. And they walk in there and they're like just overwhelmed, like at, gawked at all of this, you know, place and looking up at the castle and looking up at all the Disney characters and they're just in awe and we as parents we're in awe but we're also watching our kids and they start to drift away they start to walk away and we say hey hope charity Noah come back guys come come back come back you can look but we, we I want you to be here or, or my wife would reach down and grab him by the hand and hold on to him say listen no no you gotta hold my hand we're gonna do this you can look but you gotta hold my hand because we understood that they were getting a little too far they were starting to get into some areas no were they in danger? Not yet. But if they kept walking away, there was going to be a point in time where we weren't going to be able to see them and they weren't going to be able to see us. And with all the crowds around us, they might get lost. So we grab them and pull them, not because we don't like them, not because we're trying to punish them, but because truly we love them and we want them to be safe. And so we grab a hold of them and say, come back to me. Stand here. That's what true repentance and conviction does. Conviction and true repentance says, no, son, no, daughter. You're getting a little too far out there. Come back to the Father. Come back to me. Come on. Come back to the Father. There's safety and love and acceptance here with the Father. And, and, and walk with me. Hold my hand. But if you don't understand what repentance really means and you just simply think it's just to define good, bad, and say, God, I'm sorry, I did this, I will never do it again, only to find out tomorrow you do the same thing over again and you're like, oh God, what's wrong with me? I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'll never get past this because I ask you to forgive me and then the next day I do it again and I ask you to forgive me and I do it again and it's like, oh my God, the repetitive sins drive me crazy. I've had those. God, I'll never do this again. I promise I'll never do this again only to do it the next day, or God forbid, even the same day, just a little later in the day. And I'm like, I'll never be able to get by this. You know why? Because Joel Wright was simply repenting through changing my mind, going, okay, God, I get it's bad. But I wasn't returning back to him. I wasn't shub. I wasn't going back to him and saying, okay, God, not only do I know I shouldn't do this or shouldn't have this behavior, but God, the reason why is because I've lost my connection with you. I've lost my walk with you. I've kind of lost my hand. I'm not holding your hand as much anymore. I'm, I've, I've lost my connection. So God, not only do I know I need to change my mind, but I've got to reconnect i got to bring myself back into connection with you you see when you talk like that it makes you want to change it desires to change it doesn't like around go oh tell me what's wrong give me the list of all the bad stuff so i know what's bad and what's good give me the rules no it's like you know what i don't care what they are i just want to be back to him i want to go back to him i want to be connected again to him He's my source. He's my source. I want to go back to the source. I want to go back to the source and all this. That's what ultimately Jesus Christ is really trying to do in all of this. He's trying to take us back and say, listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to bring you back to the source. I'm trying to pull you back to the source. So today, lost in translation, there may be some things that maybe you've 
thought you were doing based off the, the way you thought about it, but realize today that you've got the concept wrong. If you want to be a Christian, that means you're trying to be Christ-like. If you're trying to love your brothers, you're not loving them the way the world defines love. You're not loving them the way you know how to love. You're loving them through him. And you can't love someone through the love of Christ if you're not walking with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're today you're struggling with conviction and condemnation. Maybe you're battling with condemnation. You feel hopeless and you don't realize that it's not coming from God. But ultimately, maybe you're trying to change, but you're not changing, truly returning back. You're just bouncing around life, trying to define your box greater and greater. And life just keeps messing with you because life isn't definable. Life is messy. Life is changing. It's evolving. It's always moving around. Whatever it might be today, Jesus Christ has the answer. Whatever you might need today, he's the source. Sometimes you've got to just return back to the feet of the master. Fall down at his feet and say, God, here I am. i got to start over again. i got to start over again. You see, that's why every day my wife teaches our kids she gets down with them at night, most nights. They're getting older now, so it's not as much as it used to be when they were younger, but especially when they were younger, my wife would get down next to them every night and she would pray with them. And she'd say, let's talk to Jesus and let's ask him, let's repent. Not so we can go through the list of all the bad things we did today, but she said, let's repent so we can get, get back to him. Every day it takes going back to the feet of the master and say, Lord, if there's anything today that's led me astray, if there's anything that's pulled me away from you, I want to get back to you. Because if you're not careful, you easily will get into this world of just bouncing around, defining what's good, defining what's bad, asking God to make your world even more square. So maybe today you just need to get back to the feet of the master and just let him define for you again some things the way he sees it, the way he understands it. And if you can see it like he sees it and understands it like he understands it, then you'll be able to receive the true fruit of what he's trying to do in your life. Father, I thank you today. Lord, I give you all the technical problems from this morning, the beginning, and all the microphone mess, because you know, Lord, in my flesh, my frustration, that easily gets me fired up and derailed. But thank you, Lord, for your grace today. I give all this to you. Every word that's been said, if there was any word that was said today, out of the mouth of Joel Wright, I pray that it wouldn't even be heard. I think I pray that you would just erase every word that was said in my own flesh out of every heart and life. But Lord, every word that was spoken that came from you, not only, Lord, would I, I pray that it would be remembered, but I pray that it would penetrate even the hardest areas of our heart, even the hardest soil of our heart, that your word would penetrate the seed of your word. Because Father, I know you desire to produce in us transformation to become more like you. But Lord, some of us don't realize what you're doing. Instead of working with you, we work against you. Instead of walking with you, we walk away from you. So Lord, today I speak a spirit of revelation to be upon us today that we can see and understand and hear and know what you're saying. That we can see and hear and know what you're doing by your grace today, Father. By your grace today, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.